I don't think there's a single person that's at this conference today that would object to that. I think everybody would be on board with trying to achieve those set of objectives. Here's what we can't do, though. We cannot take actions that will fundamentally alter the capacity for America to continue to grow its economy. You, you can't do those. Those burdens will backfire. They will have harmful effects on the environment. I can tell you the correlation between longevity and health and the capacity for a country to have economic growth is real. And when you deny that, many of these aims of the so-called Green New Deal, many of them are aimed at a more healthy world. Health decreases when countries become poor and when countries don't have the capacity to grow in a way that takes and lifts their people out of poverty. We need to do all the things that we do in the United States in a way that protects our air, protects our water, all things that matter to every person that I have encountered in agriculture industry in the oil and gas industry, we can do it. We can achieve these things. And to the extent we can find ways to do it, whether that's carbon capture, whatever it may be, I, I know that there will be innovation and investment that's made by the very people who are at this conference today. Yes, sir. Uh, first, I thank you for coming to North Dakota, Mr. Secretary. We appreciate it. Um, do you agree with the reports out there that Russia was behind the cyber attack on the Colonial Pipeline? And secondly, earlier this week, uh, former Speaker Newt Gingrich said, hey, if, if this was a state actor, we should treat this as an act of war. Do you agree with that? So the second part, I think uh, former Speaker Gingrich has right. I talked about this being an attack on the United States from an external actor. It certainly appears to be that. I don't have any information of whether or not this is uh, Russia, other than as you observe the characteristics that have been publicly made available, it has all the hallmarks of a, the kind of operation that the Russians would have engaged in. So it certainly would be consistent with their pattern and practice, whether that's the case to our intelligence community to tell our leaders and then we should expect that our leaders will respond in a way that it decreases the likelihood of this will something like this will never happen again well thank you very much for being with me this morning direct tourist series of meetings he's having with members sending a big bold plan uh to always be wearing a mask except when they were speaking uh, we have understood from all of you that as long as I keep my distance from you, which I fully intend to do, uh, <laughs> that I can uh, uh, abide by the House floor rule on this floor. As you all know, yesterday there was the president had a bipartisan meeting of the congressional leadership. Uh, it was very positive. I think the tone of it uh, was very appropriate to the important work that we have to do. Very proud of what the president is presenting, a big, bold plan uh, to build back better uh, for our country. Uh, and significant part of that uh, is building the infrastructure of our country. How you define infrastructure is part of how we go forward. We don't want to define it in an old way. We want to be thinking in terms of the future. Uh, but again, we'll see how far uh, we, we can go working together. Bipartisanship has always been the hallmark of our work on uh, building the infrastructure of our country. It has never been uh, something that we have not come to terms. In, in the Obama administration, the bill was smaller than I would have liked. But when you think that it was negotiated between Barbara Boxer and Senator Barbara Boxer and Senator Inhofe, although yesterday Senator McConnell injected that it was Boxer and McConnell who came to the fi final agreement on that bill. And that is, a, shall we say, uh, that was progress. Uh, but we want more and uh, 
that's what we're here to do. There's recognition uh, that the country needs a strong infrastructure package. Uh, uh, you know, look no further than the American Society of Civil Engineers, which gives us a, D, a DC minus, depending on uh, the category of infrastructure they're addressing. It, it's an issue of commerce. It's an issue of clean air. It's an issue of quality of life for people to have them out of their cars with more mass transit and the rest. And it is also a, an issue of um, uh, just, again, growth in a way uh, that is about safety as well as jobs. Safety issues in Mr. McConnell's state alone are like a thousand bridges uh, that are uh, insecure. And well, I could go state by state on that. In any event, uh, it is, um, we, we look forward to working as much as possible in a bipartisan way. And I salute the president as I began my comments doing uh, for the goal that he has set, the tone in which he has conducted the discussion, the end, well, I won't say endless because I'm not there for them, the series of meetings he's having with members of Congress in a bipartisan way. And I think today's meeting with the Republican senators, some of the Republican senators, once again. So he's making every attempt. And I think it is bearing fruit. Uh, we'll see. Uh, again, uh, we're very proud of what happened when we passed the, the rescue package. Uh, but in order for people to bet uh, avail themselves of the benefits of it, they have to know. Right now, we're in the course of a child tax credit week of action, week of action. Before we had day of action for one aspect of the bill or another, this is a week of action because it, it leads up to May 17th, which is the day that we're encouraging people to file their income tax forms, even if they are below the level of having to file a tax return. Because in order to get the tax credit refundable, you need to file your tax return. So I'm very, very proud of the work that's being done. And I've been involved in a series of those meetings and many of the uh, community groups who have the confidence culturally, linguistically, in so many ways with so many um, uh, people in our community are helping a great deal. They're helping a great deal also in terms of vaccines in the arms, money in the pockets, children in school, as well as workers going back to work to communicate uh, with the community, uh, members of the community who might have been previously underserved. Then, as I say, we go on to the jobs bill, and that's, that's I think that's pretty, pretty exciting. Uh, just saying on the tax credit, since we're having tax credit, child tax credit week of action, it will benefit 27 million families and cuts child poverty in half. Cuts child poverty in half. And that's kind of remarkable. So as we, again, build back better, uh, we think that it's important for us to have um, more women in the workforce, shall we say, that, that child, child care is very important to that, that we have... Uh, workforce development so that people can be trained uh, for these jobs as we build in a more future resilient, futuristic, resilient way. And that's why this package has a an integrity to it 
a oneness that says, if we're going to build back better, if we're going to have many more people involved, both in the job creation and the equity that could come from contracts and the rest for women, veterans, people of color, uh, rural areas and the rest, uh, that we have to be more open to many more people being involved. And for that to happen, the transformative measure is child care, elder care, care for our people with disabilities. So in terms of child care, children learning, parents earning. In terms of the others, people being able to go into the workforce with the comfort of knowing that their loved one is cared for. And that goes with the respect that we would have for the workforce to get that done. So I'm very excited about everything that the president is putting forth. Uh, it's to me, it's like the promised land of so many good things. But of course, I want more. But but that's <laughs> the the president has modulated his um, his proposal in a way that hopefully will be as bipartisan as possible, as green as possible, and as soon as possible. The, uh, the other subject I want to bring up today with you is what what is on the floor today. <clears throat> we have the uh, this. Uh, built on the floor that means a lot to me as a mother of five. Uh, that's the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, a bipartisan step to ensure that women are no longer forced to be between uh, the health, uh, healthy pregnancies and their paychecks. Uh, any um, family members in the room know uh, that uh, the blessing of, of... What are you going to be sharing with them in your speech? So it's a lot of fun. Colonial now, like... How important is the Bakken to us being a net exporter with energy? Oh goodness, we can. The, the math is pretty plain. The Bakken matters a heck of a lot to America's capacity to deliver not only around the world but for affordable energy here at home too. It's uh, regrettable that the administration has taken a, a position with respect to a pipeline in the United States where we destroyed tens of thousands of jobs for sure, but all of the good that would have benefited America when that product began to flow as well. It's, it's almost unexplainable. At the same time, they're supporting a pipeline that the Russians are building up in the north of Europe. It, it's a real head scratcher. I hope that uh, somehow this will be brought back. It's really important for American national security as well for our prosperity. The issues with the colonial pipeline are complicated. Uh, they show a couple things. One, it's um, in spite of all the money that's been invested by colonial and others to protect their systems, uh, offense is pretty easy to play in the cyber world, and so we need to make sure that we have redundancy, reliable systems that we can make sure and have multiple ways where we can transport this energy around America so that we don't have the gas lines that we all remember from uh, the 1970s. Uh, it, it highlights, too, the nature of the importance of pipelines in moving this product around to the United, within the United States, to our East Coast, as well as getting it to our ports so we can export it. We have to get this right. I know this industry well. This industry can do so in a way that is safe and environmentally friendly and will deliver these products in a way that make each and every one of us proud. You look at uh, inflation, the situation at the border, the latest jobs report. We're not even four months into this administration, Mr. Secretary. Uh, what do you see over the next 44 months? You know, it's been a tough hundred days for Americans. Uh, you just see the lumber prices and uh, inflation hitting now at food costs for Americans who can least afford it, uh, proposals to spend trillions and trillions more dollars for things that Americans will ultimately not truly need. And overseas, we now see a war taking place in the Middle East. Uh, we saw what happened with the pipeline here in North Dakota. These are all things that would not have happened in the Trump administration. 
it would have been very different. Our adversaries sense weakness and markets sense that they're going to spend so much money that inflation will be upon us. Uh, I regret this. This isn't in the best interest of America. I hope that come November of 2022, there's a group of folks elected who are prepared to push back against these things. So there's a big conversation right now about where did the uh, COVID-19 virus come from? Was it from a lab? Was it from nature? You suggested in a radio interview earlier today that it came from the lab. Can you tell us more about the specifics there? So the Wuhan virus has now killed hundreds of thousands of Americans and millions of people around the world. The Chinese Communist Party is responsible for having covered up what happened there. But we still haven't had technicians go into this place. It's called the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Uh, why won't they let anybody in? Well, there's a mounting set of evidence that suggests that the virus was being worked on inside of that laboratory, and then almost certainly through an accidental leak, left that virology laboratory. Uh, while we can't say this for certain, we know that there were doctors there that came down with symptoms that were consistent with the Wuhan virus. We know that they wouldn't permit doctors that were working there to speak about this. We know they were doing back coronavirus research inside of this laboratory and that they were doing something, they, they were manipulating this virus, something called gain of function research inside of that laboratory. And again, we, we don't know the answer for sure, but as we turn pages and we learn more, it increasingly looks like this was a leak that came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And you can see the economic destruction is done around the world and the enormous costs uh, in lives all across the world as well. The Chinese Communist Party unambiguously covered this up. They knew there was human tr human transmission, yet they denied it. They co-opted the World Health Organization to tell their same story. These were critical moments, a critical juncture in the virus's transmission around the world. And then I'll, I'll finally say this. It matters an awful lot, not only for this virus, but for the next one. If this lab isn't safe, if this lab is not being operated in a way that ensures that you have integrity and security at the laboratory, we'll see something like this again. That is unacceptable. The world should hold the Chinese Communist Party accountable for the cover-up and hold them accountable to make sure that their laboratories are operating in a way that keeps the world safe. I want to get to holding them accountable in a moment, but you are strongly suggesting it came from the lab. Are you 90% certain based on the intel that you have? 95%? What, what percent certainty do you have? So I would say this. I've seen enormous evidence that suggests that the most likely initial point of transmission was the Wuhan Institute of Virology. You talked about holding China accountable. You know the State Department met with the Chinese delegation in Alaska in March. They did not mention the word COVID once. That seems completely irresponsible to me. How can they sit down with a Chinese delegation? I just wanted to know your kind of takeaway from that, that they don't even mention the word COVID to the Chinese delegation. It's unexplainable. When we met with the Chinese each and every time, I think at every level of government, we were clear in our expectation, not only that we would figure out where patient zero came from, they would allow research uh, researchers to determine this. It's not political. This is about science. Uh, we we want to make sure we understood that. And then we were very clear, too, that there are a set of rules. There are international health regulations that the WHO puts out that we wanted them to comply with those rules. They chose not to. It's why we, in the end, left the WHO. It made no sense. It had become a political body, not a science-based body. Uh, I'm very concerned about what continues to happen inside of China today. Their biosafety levels are not where we would expect them to be for a country with the capabilities that they have. The world must ensure that we don't ever suffer from something like this again from a Chinese laboratory or from any place else inside of China. What can we do to hold them accountable? And when, when are we going to have a full throttle investigation? 
Well, the investigation ports top the Chinese control access to their country if they choose not to permit us to investigate. We'll never get folks in there. It's also the case that they have destroyed significant pieces of evidence, including, it appears, the original virus itself. Uh, this is this is very telling that the Chinese Communist Party decided to close down. This is this is how authoritarian regimes respond. We we saw it with what happened uh, with the Russians with the nuclear accident they had there. We've now seen this is what happens when the Chinese have something that emanates from their country as well. As for accountability, there are many tools. There are many places where we can impose real costs on the Chinese Communist Party until they allow us to figure out how it is the case that this virus escaped from their country and we weren't able to respond in a way that was timely and sufficient to keep people all across the world alive. You talk about a possible lab leak. There's right now a national bio and agro defense lab level four being put up in Manhattan, Kansas. Yes, I'm very familiar with I, that. I, I know you are, <laughs> sir. There's a lot of people that you know have some concerns about that. It's right in the heart of cattle country. Just your assessment on putting this level lab in the middle of cattle country. I, I watched that uh, program go from idea to conception to uh, where we sit today. I have great confidence that the work that will be done that will be done in a responsible way and that the United States, we've, we've, we've done this work for an awfully long time. We haven't had these same kinds of incidents. We haven't created viruses that traveled across the world. I'm confident that while you know, accidents are always possible in everything that we do, this risk is well worth taking, that we can handle these viruses. The work that will be done, they'll be done in a way that is safe and secure and doesn't substantially increase either the risk to agriculture in my home state of Kansas or to the world from the work that we'll be doing there. Last question, sir. Kind of two in one. We're a very action-oriented show. So based on what you know from being former CIA director and former secretary of state, what keeps you up at night? And what can someone like myself or the average American be doing on a daily basis to save this nation? Every American has a responsibility in every place they come, whether it's their PTA meeting or their city council meeting, or they're just gathering with their friends, a group of dads coming together for a Saturday gathering, or, or some moms that are gathered at the playground with their kids. We have to talk about the things that matter to the United States of America and why our republic has been so strong and resilient. You see what's happening in our schools today? They're moving away from teaching the things that we know matter to our founders, the things upon which uh, this Judeo-Christian nation was built. And if we'll all redouble our efforts, if we'll all be clear, if we'll all be unafraid of the woke cancel culture, then I have enormous confidence. This is this is an amazing nation. We have withstood challenges that are enormous for a couple of hundred plus years now. I'm convinced that we can withstand this challenge, but it only happens when people in the small places, in our schools, in our churches, and in our PTA meetings, when, when people are fearless, talking about the things and their value set, I'm very confident the United States will still be a great republic 100 or 200 years from now as well. Amen. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for Thank your you. service. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, ma'am. Sure. Um, so, so just a moment of silence right there. So um, this was for you to see. And we have to trust that the Kansas people will rise up and ask for a risk assessment that hasn't been done in nearly 10 years. So it's very important that we get people in Kansas riled up. And I think it was a very important interview, both um, that and the one about Pelosi, because as you see, Pompeo's there talking energy and energy. The Bakken is actually owned by the Chinese. Um, the Chinese have over 50% interest in uh, Bakken energy. And Back in 2019, 
I had discovered that Clinton Management Energy Services slash Enron were in there. Epstein as well had a lot of interest in it through his hedge fund manager, who's the head of Sloan Kittering. Um, I think his wife is in charge of Sloan Kittering off the top of my head. And um, he had invested a lot into the back end, into North Dakota Energy. Uh, and that was quite telling that he's there talking energy. But one thing he did say is, you know, nothing's a hundred percent. There are always accidents. So take that as you will. It's important that people listen to everything they are told and pay attention to the words. And one thing you guys saw while we were waiting for, um, former secretary slash CIA director Pompeo to speak is we saw, um, Nancy Pelosi talking about uh, infrastructure and building back better. So I thought it would be important to revisit this video that I had created so you understand what is really going on. We now have the opportunity to build back better than in the past, aiming at inclusive and sustainable economies and societies. In order to meet the challenges today, we can't just build back the way things were before. We have to build back better. Take a look at America today. Over 150,000 Americans are dead from COVID-19. We have a health crisis, an economic crisis, a racial justice crisis, a climate crisis exacerbated by Trump's denial of science. And America needs a plan to solve all of them. Over the last century, America has defined itself by rising to meet existential challenges. On this International Mother Hearst Day, all eyes are on the COVID-19 pandemic, the biggest test the world has faced since the Second World War. We must act decisively to protect our planet from both the coronavirus and the existential threat of climate disruption. The current crisis is an unprecedented wake-up call. We need to turn the recovery into a real opportunity to do things right for the future. We'll make the biggest investment in manufacturing and innovation since World War II. Today, federal investment in research and development is at an all-time low. That's why I'm proposing historic research and development investment to sharpen America's competitive edge in new industries. As we spent huge amounts of money to recover from coronavirus, we must deliver new jobs and businesses through a clean, green transition. Second, where taxpayers' money is used to rescue businesses, it needs to be tied to achieving green jobs and sustainable growth. There's no more consequential challenge we have to meet in the next decade than the onrushing climate crisis. We'll meet this challenge by creating millions of jobs in a clean energy economy. Jobs that will ensure American automobile industry leads the world in manufacturing electric vehicles. Public funds should be used to invest in the future, not the past, and flow to sustainable sectors and projects that help the environment and the climate. We're going to make investments so by the end of my first term, we are going to be on an irreversible course to achieve net zero emissions, economy-wide, no later than 2050. Fiscal firepower must drive a shift from the gray to the green economy and make societies and people more resilient. In order to build back better, we have to ensure that all Americans have opportunities to generate wealth, especially communities of color that have been historically left out of the benefits of an economic recovery. Fifth, climate risks and opportunities must be incorporated into the financial system as well as all aspects of public policy making and infrastructure. That's why I'm going to take on our successful Obama-Biden Small Business Fund and scale it up 
to 20 times the size. So the black and brown small business owners have access to $150 billion in venture capital and low interest finance. Greenhouse gases, just like viruses, do not respect national boundaries. We need to work together as an international community. Times are tough now in America, but we've been here before. We can do this. We can build back better. And I'm looking forward to getting started as soon as we can. We must do all we can to save lives and ease the economic and social devastation. Crucially, we need to draw the appropriate lessons about the vulnerabilities and inequalities the virus has laid bare and mobilize investments in education, health systems, social protection, and resilience. This is the biggest international challenge since the Second World War. Yet, even before this test, the world was facing other profound transnational perils, climate change above all. But multilateralism is not only a matter of confronting shared threats, it's also seizing common opportunities. We now have the opportunity to build back better than in the past, aiming at inclusive and sustainable economies and societies. Over the past few months, momentum has grown for what I call a global green new deal. To be so broad and to be so comprehensive, because we are, we are outlining the green new deal. So as you can see, it was never Joe Biden's idea. It was the UN. What they're pushing is policies, global policies, policies that are not American, policies that are UN-centric, policies that are not in our interest, but in others. And we see this happening across the nation. And all we can do is think, well, what is it that we can find? What is it that we can see? How can we hold them accountable? And it's exactly what you've been doing. As you notice, uh, there was um, a big push in regards to the energy, right? And this energy um, push for allowing China to have access to our energy grids was a very big deal. And uh, we see that uh, they have begun to expose themselves. From day one of entering into office, he re re released the ban on China to have access to our power grids, shut down the Dakota Access Pipeline, and now we have an alleged hack that everyone keeps saying is a, how does he say, a Russian hack. They're obsessed with Russia. But what people need to understand is, is that this Green New Deal that you saw at the end of that video isn't something new. It's something that they've been planning for a while. I want you to think of something called a green bank. They tell you that a green bank is a public or quasi-public financing institution that provides low-cost and long-term financing support to clean low-carbon projects by leveraging public funds through the use of various financial mechanisms to attract private investment so that each public dollar supports multiple dollars of private investment. What does that sound like? Money laundering. And what's incredible is, is that there are green banks and there are many, many national campaigns 
The state campaigns are in California, Connecticut, Hawaii, Kentucky, Maryland, Minnesota, New York, New Jersey, and Washington State. They have uh, national campaigns uh, pushing the deal of green banking, which is quite fascinating because one would think, huh, why is this happening? Well, what's really, really funny is that this is something else that the Bidens have been involved with. What they wanted to do was use amalgamated bank to get labor unions it, into um, converting amalgamated bank into a green bank. And it's all talking about energy reform and energy independence trust. This is one of the most incredible money laundering, asphyxiating programs for individual nations and, and states that I have ever seen. Delving into those that masterminded it, one would say, wow, th this isn't really happening. No one's going to do this. And yet they are. We have people from the Johnson Foundation, REH Advisors, Brightman Energy, all in on this. Hanson Hutton. And there's a guy named Dan Adler, California Clean Energy Fund. That's where you need to be looking at what they're doing with the money now that the pipelines are down. But speaking of the gas shortage we have, I wanted to translate what Joe Biden said yesterday. And I do have a working article that I'm going to publish that's going to be quite simple. But yesterday, someone actually had the cojones, and it seemed pretty fixed, to ask Joe Biden about the gas shortage. Listen to his response. Oops, you can't listen to the response because there's no volume. Here we go. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Mr. President, it. what do you say to Americans who are worried about the supply of gas and rising prices right now? We have been in very, very close contact with Colonial Pipeline, which is the one area you're talking about where the one of the reasons the gasoline prices are going up. And I think you're going to hear some good news in the next 24 hours. And I think we'll be getting that under control. Secondly, um, uh, I have, uh, in the meantime, made it easier for us to have lifted some of the restrictions on the transportation of fuel, as well as access to the United States military providing fuel and with vehicles to get it there where places where it's badly needed. And um, I'd also point out that I think what this shows is that uh, I think we have to uh, make a greater investment in education as it relates to being able to train and graduate more people proficient in cybersecurity. Uh, and uh, I've been saying for a long, long time now, I know I probably, you could probably say it for me, but uh, I think that one of the most important things we have to do to reclaim our place as a leading innovator in the world is to uh, uh, have a better educated workforce. And that goes back to the days a long time ago now, or five years ago, and I was vice president, and I surveyed all the Fortune 500 companies. said, what do you most need? And remember what they said, better educated workforce. 
but they're not spending money to educate the workforce. And uh, but it's important that we do this. And the cybersecurity piece is one I think you're going to see where we need significantly larger number of experts in the area of cybersecurity working for private companies, as well as um, uh, private companies being willing to uh, um, share data as to what how they're protecting themselves. I think that's part of the long-term answer, not just in terms of energy, but across the board. I know that's not a direct response to your question, but it does impact on it, I think, down the road. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. So now we're going to re-listen to it. We have been in very, very close contact with Colonial Pipeline, which is the one area you're talking about where the one of the reasons the gasoline prices are going up. And I think you're going to hear some good news in the next 24 hours. So he's saying that within 24 hours, there's going to be some announcement because they're having discussions with them. Wait, he's already telling you what you're going to hear. And I think we'll be getting that under control. Secondly, um, uh, I have, uh, in the meantime, made it easier for us to have lifted some of the restrictions on the transportation of fuel as well as act. So he lifted restrictions on transportation of fuel. Now, let me tell you something. The majority of black market oil, drugs, and human trafficking is done by trucks and trains. Trucks and trains cost a lot of gas and they're not, you know, you can't use them. But if the Chinese wanted to smuggle out their gas and oil, or if they wanted to pay people off, they would use trains and automobiles, not pipelines, which are measured in cubic um, in cubics through the pipe. So you know how much is going through and where it's going to. So this is very interesting. Access to the United States military providing fuel and with vehicles to get it there where places where it's badly needed. And uh, so they're going to be using military vehicles to deliver gas to places that it's badly needed. That doesn't sound right. That really doesn't sound right. Oh, that infrastructure. Um, I'd also point out that I think what this shows is that uh, I think we have to uh, make a greater investment in education as it relates to being able to train and graduate more people proficient in cybersecurity. Oh, so he's telling people the way to solve the problem of energy and the fact that we're making a shit ton of money off of these pipelines because we own half of this is to learn how to fucking code. So he told the world to fix this. We need to learn to code. I thought years ago when someone told the journalists, the whole room of journalists from Huffington Poe that got fired, learned to code, you know, suddenly that was banned. If you said learn to code on Twitter, they would ban you because it was demeaning. But now here he is telling the world, y'all just need how to learn to code. And then we won't have alleged hackers. Oh, come on. Come on. Listen to this. Uh, and uh, I've been saying for a long, long time now, I know I probably, you could probably say it for me, but uh, I think that one of the most important things we have to do 
to reclaim our place as the leading innovator in the world is to uh, uh, have a better educated workforce. And that goes back to the days a long time ago now, or five years ago, and I was vice president and I surveyed all the Fortune 500 companies. said, what do you most need? And remember what they said, better educated workforce. But they're not spending money to educate the workforce. And uh, but it's important that we do this. And the cybersecurity piece is one I think you're going to see where we need significantly larger number of experts in the area of cybersecurity working for private companies, as well as um, uh, private companies being willing to uh, um, share data as to what how they're protecting themselves. I think that's part of the long-term answer, not just in terms of energy, but across the board. I know that's not a direct response to your question, but it does impact on it, I think, down the road. Okay, so we also not only need to train more people to learn how to code, but then the companies that are protecting themselves need to share information on how they protect themselves. So that way everyone's protected because the government, trust us, we're the government, will help you. I see. So that's what they had to say. Now, it won't be till August where we touch base on this topic again. But I thought, since I started early, maybe we can have a little bit of fun and revisit the 30s and look at some expeditions and stuff. So please enjoy the next few minutes watching and listening to this amazing piece of archived information. We heard a noise under the snow. <laughs> Just as completely as if we were on the planet Mars. The old bear looked like a ghost ship as he disappeared into the mist. This little seal, Jimmy Jr., just one day old. Others were generally asleep when you went up to them. They'd open their eyes and take a look at you and go back to sleep again. Jimmy Jr., a month later. We weighed the young seal periodically for the benefit of biological science. They had to gain very rapidly on account of the extremely short summer season. Jimmy Jr., believe it or not, gained six pounds a day. And here is how he did it. Keep this hole open by sawing on the edge with our teeth. And here's Mrs. Jimmy Seal, trying to get Jimmy Jr. to make his first solo dive under this thick ice. 
even though his mother was there to show him how to do it. This first dive must have been a tough one. In this fight between Weddell and the crab eater, who's only half as big as the Weddell, the little fellow easily licks the big one. And the big fellow is wise. He runs away, so he'll live to fight another day. These emperor penguins are great fellows. They weigh from 60 to 90 pounds in the standard boat. We put the planes in snow hangars. Plenty of hard work. All the fat men soon got thin. We had to put our dogs underneath the snow in tunnels. Up around the North Pole in most places, you can keep them outside during the long night. But it is so much cooler down south, if you should keep them out, they would soon freeze to death. We had about a quarter of a mile of these tunnels all together. The dogs slept in boxes put in the sides of the tunnel. These dogs are stout fellows. They will pull for you on the long trail until they drop in their tracks. They are okay with people, but are sudden death to each other. Of all living creatures, they are probably the most pugnacious. If we had unchained them, they would in a few weeks be very few dogs left, if any. They fight to the death. One of the good things about full-blooded huskies is that they eat snow, so that on the long trail, you don't have to carry fuel to melt snow for water for them. And that enables you to make much more mileage. And here is one of those wonderful dogs, Dindy. Dindy's master had ordered him to go back into his box. Although Dinty was very, very hungry, he was a good soldier. He obeyed orders and went back into his box. But that didn't keep him from coming right out again. The mother of these pups had gotten sick. And it fell to the lot of Captain Taylor to nurse them. It is still a great mystery to me how a nursing bottle and nipple happened to get on a polar expedition. Which was the magnitude of our flight operations that it is impossible to cover them with motion pictures. On this expedition, as on the others, we made many flights of exploration and discovered much land and islands and many mountains. Our various South Polar expeditions explored and investigated for science the Pacific half of this South Polar continent. This map shows how this half appeared before my first Antarctic expedition, 1928-30. The white blank part you see here was completely unknown. It was well over a million square miles in area. No human being had ever seen any part of it. 
We didn't know whether there was land or water in that area. We didn't know where the Pacific Ocean ended or where the coastline of Antarctica began. Now I'm going to show you how this map looks today. We know now what is in that blank space. So much for the science of discovery. There's something about that very important branch of science, meteorology. Well, fellas, we have licked it. Supplies are all in. Amps secure. Field parties are all set to go. Fine, Dick. Now, we of the home guard will sit by the fire in our cozy shack, just thinking of those poor devils on the trail, picking them up and laying them down. Oh, no, you won't, Charlie. The home guard will do all that thinking with a snow shovel. Rather do my thinking sitting down, boys. About this thing. <laughs> Admiral, will the field parties hold the original plan? Well, here's the dope. Samples party will clear for long penetration near some Ford range over here. Plateau party uh, will start south on a geological reconnaissance up here. Bam Hall and Morgan with the tractors make a seismic survey over in this region. That campaign ought to clear up a great many questions. Expecto. Let's go topside. Dog team's ready. I want to have a look at those sleds again. And here are the field forces lined up for the start of the campaign. Dr. Bram Hall, physicist. Eilefson, driver. Morgan, geologist. Russell, driver. Ines Taylor in charge of trail operations. Admiral Byrd. So long, Payne. Good luck. Take no chances with the crevasses. Thank you, Commander. Payne, navigators, Ronnie, ski expert, Good and Blackby, leader of the geological party. Instantly now, on half a dozen far-flung fronts, Byrd launches his attack. Dogs, tractors, airplanes, Every weapon in the armory of the explorer is pressed into action. Tractors and airplanes may be the new tin gods of polar transport, but the Eskimo Husky is still the spirit, the advanced king of the trail. Men and dogs, ahead of them a hundred days of aching marches through the deadly white ambushes of crevasses. In two months, one of these parties will stand on the rim of the South Polar Plateau, just seven days' march from the pole itself. Let's follow the fortunes of the southern party for a while to see how it goes on the long trail. This is a typical scene, making camp at the end of the day's march. Each man has a reindeer skin sleeping bag, which in my opinion is the warmest and the best. It is also light. It is covered with a windproof bag to keep the snow out during storms. This cooker, you see, has been specially made. You can't buy them in civilization. You melt the snow for the tea, 
and cook the trail hoosh at the same time. Tea is a great trail ring. On the long trail, you can't use metal spoons because they will stick to the lips from the coal and pull the skin off. You have to use wooden spoons. The food is strictly rationed. You get a certain amount each meal, and there is no second helping. Now, supper is ready. In order to go long distances on the trail, you have to put up these food beacons, which consist mostly of pemmican, dried milk, and chocolate. Dogs can't pull enough in any one load to go very far. Therefore, you must put up these food beacons to pick up on the way back. On the top, you put an orange-colored flag for visibility. If you should miss the beacons in thick weather, you would be in danger of starving. As an experiment, we tried sails on the sleds, just as you would use them on the boat. This was to help the dogs, and it worked very well. On the way to the mountains, a couple of dogs were lost down a crevasse. Then later, one of the men nearly fell into one of them. At length, about 500 miles south of Little America, they reached the mountains that border the great polar plateau, of which the South Pole is the center. They ascended a gigantic glacier, which we had discovered on our flight to the South Pole in 1929. It was about 100 miles long and more than 30 miles wide in places. Finally, they reached a point 10,000 feet high in the mountains, where they were almost within sight of the South Pole. There they discovered a great seam of coal. There was enough to supply the whole United States for a while. There was plenty of COLD, too. The coal was right out in the open, and here's a photograph of some hunks of it. It proves that this area, now the coldest spot of the world, was once tropical or semi-tropical. They also discovered some fossilized tree trunks, showing that trees once grew where now there's not even a blade of grass. Such discoveries help to divulge the past history of this world we live on. And as long as anything remains unknown on this globe, man is going to keep at the job of finding it. He is made that way. And now let's take up where we left off, back at Little America. Not even a series of disasters, two crashes, and a appendicitis operation are allowed to interrupt the march of exploration. Weather clears. A steady barometer. And with standby orders to fly, Chief Pilot June and his aviation crew make ready for the crucial flight. The ground crew guides the giant plane, and with its two engines of 1,400 horsepower pulling in rhythm, the whale-bodied condor breaks from her drift-covered berth. Charlie, how'd you like to go along? Up to the whole national debt. I promise you a nice southern exposure. Are you still determined to go through with this thing? Certainly. We got a meteorological station out there, and we're going to use it. It's a pity it's so late in the season that we can't get enough supplies out there for three men. Well. It can't be helped now. You still insist on doing it alone. There's no choice. You know it's impossible for two men psychologically. It's got to be one man. I know, Dick. To talk about it is one thing. For seven months of cold, darkness, solitude, it's a long, long time. Okay, Charlie. I know all about that. But you see, it's up to me to go. Besides, I want to do it. 
43 below, Admiral. The oil is chilling. Coming. Any instructions? There's only one standing order. Under no circumstances shall anyone come for me during the winter night. Suppose we lose radio contact. You probably will. I'm the world's worst radio operator. So don't let yourself get stampeded into any relief effort. Somebody might get hurt. That's a tough one. Well, it's a safe one. Let's go. Here she comes. Nine and a half tons of straining steel and fabric. The heaviest load ever lifted on ski. She's off. A beautiful takeoff. June settling over little America. He gains altitude over this newly founded capital of the unknown. Seen from the air for the first time since that historic and intrepid flight over the South Pole, now they've squared away. The sun compass bird lays across to the eastward, toward the unknown, undiscovered land which has eluded him on half a dozen flights. Will that distant storm-locked horizon this time yield its ancient secrets? Making a hundred knots, they take a shortcut across an arm of Ross Sea. Like chips from a whittler's knife, the miles fall behind them, two to the minute. Eastward, ever eastward. In the smooth air, they fly unhindered over the frightful disturbances that make sledging a constant nightmare. Pressure ridges, crevasses, miles upon miles of huge crevasses like gaping wounds. Some of them are a hundred feet wide, with sheer blue-green walls and no bottom. A swell place to get rid of old razor blades, but a ghastly place for a forced landing. And now Delta indicates something below on the plateau. It's the tractor party, one month out of Little America, still gamely carrying on. Man, what a story these pioneering gasoline gypsies could tell. One machine broken down, the other crippled. No service station nearer than 200 miles. Sorry, fellows, no hitchhikers. Steadily they forge eastward, hour after hour. And at last, on the threshold of discovery, their weary senses are freshened by the thrill of looking upon that which no other human eyes have ever seen. A thing which Bird had sought through two expeditions. That remote and inaccessible land which had drawn explorers to its frontiers like filings to a magnet and then mockingly flung them back. That land now slowly unlocks its secrets of the centuries. Peak upon peak, streaming as far as Bird could see. A great and mountainous land larger than Texas, but condemned to everlasting rigidity. Once tropical climate carpeted these slopes with luxuriant vegetation. But the floodgates of the last ice age were opened Oceans of glacial ice bound all but the tallest peaks, and all life except tiny, crawling, microscopic things was extinguished. A lost world, as barren as a dead planet. A world where sun and darkness are forever struggling for ascendancy. A world wrenched from the twilight of the Ice Age and restored by American daring to the knowledge of mankind. Now the clouds are massing behind them, as if the furies of the Antarctic, angered by the rupture of their ancient secrets, we're mobilizing to chastise the invaders. We at last saw under us the site of the advanced outpost. Just a tiny speck in the immensity of the limitless rolling snow plain. And now it is time to build a little shack which was only 9 by 13 feet and which would be filled mostly with meteorological instruments. It got as low as 65 degrees below zero when this shack was being built. And some of the men froze their faces, hands, and feet rather badly. One man froze his feet so thoroughly 
that it took quite a long time to get them back to life again. We couldn't get all the food and fuel in the tiny shack, so we had to build some tunnels leading out. At last, the shack is finished. A few feet of it, that protruded above the snow, was entirely covered by the first storm. This is now a completely equipped and operating U.S. Weather Bureau station. We were going to find out for the first time what the inland weather of an ice age would be like. Here's an example of one of the many weather instruments I operated. It records with ink the speed and direction of the wind. I had to take the grease out of it so it would run and put glycerin in the ink to keep it from freezing. It was connected electrically with this anemometer pole. This is how I... No instrument had been designed for such bitter temperatures. It was a chilly job, especially when I had to remove my mittens. My fingers always froze along with my nose. Here you have the cold weather costume. Reindeer skin, mucklucks, parka, pants, and mittens. Reindeer skin is the lightest, warmest, and best. We had at this weather station the coldest average temperature ever recorded. The cold does queer things. When the temperature is 65 degrees below zero or colder, your breath freezes. And now it is time for my friends to leave for a little America and for me to begin my vigil alone in the shadow of the South Pole. The long winter night is very close now. Even though this photograph was taken at midday, note how long the shadows are of the men. I would see no living creature until the long night would end five months hence. As my friends disappeared over the horizon, I felt as if I were the only man alive on a strange and unknown planet. Here is the rush cablegram just received from Middle America that tells us the latest developments and what's going on down there. It says, under the leadership of Dr. Thomas C. Poulter, second in command, a tractor party this afternoon was making ready for a dash to Admiral Byrd's advance base. He has just been contacted on the radio, but doggedly insists that he is all right. His men don't believe him. Admiral Byrd is now in his fifth month of isolation at the bottom of the world. The last gear is stowed on the tractor, on the sledges, sleeping bags, tents, primer stoves, two months of urgency rations for man in case of failure. Everything required for the night transit of the most inhospitable region on the face of the earth. The officer commanding the party, Dr. Thomas C. Poulter. Bud Waite, radio operator. Pete Demas, driver. Ahead of the tractors, a party of man haulers to explore a safe passage for the heavy tractor to the labyrinth of pressurized south of the camp. reports are exchanged every few hours. On the blackboard in the mess hall, the inching progress of the tractor is told in hard bought miles. And every mile a cruel adventure, slaving over a failing clutch and ice-filled fuel lines, freezing hands and faces every few minutes.
Not yours. Nothing doing. I don't come through. Okay, tomorrow's another day. Wish him luck. Midnight. And after hours of silence, a message from the tractor. They're at advanced base. And now the scene shifts back to little America. This is a few days later. The sun returns at last. You don't realize what a magnificent thing the sun is until you've been without it for months of darkness and cold. As spring had come, my men started to dig out. Cops had refused to go up on topside during the long night. When they took the trap door off the barn in the spring, he stuck his head out into the pure fresh air and asked the question, what is this strange smell up here? Two months later, the sun having risen and dissipated the winter night, Admiral Byrd returns to Little America, nearly seven months after he began his long period of isolation. Big camp wasn't it, Commander? Well, George, I'm here. You don't look so hot. You should have seen him when he raced him two months ago. Put on 30 pounds since then. Thanks for the bump, George. You're very welcome, Commander. I'll sleep up there. Oh, Tom. Are you going to be all right? He'll be okay, but you got to be careful. He had a close call. What was it? Carbon oxide poisoning from his radio engine and stove. Hmm. When did it happen? He got his worst case of poisoning the last of May. That was two and a half months before we reached him. Curious? We had radio contact with him most of the time. How did he manage to hold out? And why didn't he call for help? That we may never know. He doesn't say much about it. I'm going up to the plane. Please sit down. Thanks, Bill. Won't be long now. We hope the rope will be in tomorrow. <clears throat> then civilization. Green grass, green trees, green vegetables. Home. The fight is drawing near again. So the ships have come to get us. We tried to load up from the bay ice. You will see what happened. I couldn't risk my men on any such ice as this. In a storm, they drift out to sea and get lost. Therefore, whether we liked it or not, we had to go alongside the Great Barrier. And here is the only low place within a radius of 100 miles we were lucky to find it. We couldn't risk the Rupert alongside, so we loaded onto the bear and from the bear to the Rupert. Penguins were there to see us off. 
No emperor penguin had ever been brought back to civilization alive. We built an icebox on the Rupert, air-conditioned it, and put some water in it, and managed to get ten of them back in good shape. And for the first time, emperors were brought back to civilization alive. They refused to eat it first, so we had to force these little fish down their throats. They got very indignant. A sea leopard appeared on the bay ice. A sea leopard is very rare, and he's a great killer. He's death on seal and penguins. The whales are going north. They will soon freeze over. These are blue whales. They weigh from 50 to 100 tons. The biggest creatures that ever existed. As we approached New Zealand, we took the penguins out of the icebox for some exercise on the deck of the ship. We found that these penguins belonged to the penguin army. They insisted on marching everywhere, and they went two by two. of the United States are in sight. From Little America, they return to Big America. After 14 months on the Antarctic continent, the 56 members of the Byrd expedition land at the Washington Navy Yard. Admiral Richard E. Byrd, the only man to fly the Atlantic and across both poles, back from further explorations on the South Polar continent. Home, not so humble with the President of the United States there to greet you, but still it's home, sweet home. He makes his report to the head of the nation. I herewith report to you, Mr. President, the return of the Bad Antarctic Expedition. The President pays a national tribute that warms to a glowing welcome. Let me add just one thing from the heart. Dick, I salute you. How is that so far? Uh, I hope that kind of gave you some insight of what we're going to talk about because there was a lot in there that you needed to um, unpack. So hopefully you guys can uh, get in there uh, again. For those of you that are subscribed, you can watch it again because uh, it was kind of interesting, right? Little America. Don't hear that much, do you? That's so true. So let's um let's get to our news. So one thing that astounded many people is that we know that um, bribing people to make healthcare decisions is against the law. Actually, the Department of Justice uh, Civil Rights Division has uh, talked about that many times. 
yet we saw that Governor DeWine has engaged in such activities. Not only that, while engaging in such activities, he has also admitted that they're tracking every single person that is getting vaccinated. So I guess you really don't need a vaccine passport because all voters are being documented as having received the vaccine. So take a listen to this, how the media is thumping it. It's something amazing where he's pushing um, a lottery win that, hey, you're going to win a million dollars if you take the vaccine. Ohio is offering its residents a shot at winning a million dollars along with their COVID vaccine shots. Governor Mike DeWine announced that beginning May 26th, the state will draw one vaccine recipient to win one million dollars. This will happen every week for five weeks. To qualify, you have to live in Ohio, be, sick, be 18 or older and have at least one dose of the COVID vaccine. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine joins us first on CBS This Morning. Governor, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Why this Thank incentive? You. you know, I've been thinking uh, every day, what can we do to increase the number of people who are getting the vaccine? And, and I wanted to say something. So, you know, Phoebe got a pneumonia, right? So she's doing her learning remote. Well, yesterday in class, her teacher said, well, it's great. 93% of the students have gotten vaccinated. How does he know? Why is there a database if your kid was vaccinated? I'm sorry, parents, you suck. But your choice still suck. Kind of like, I don't like people that dye their hair a certain color. You suck. Your choice though, right? My body, my choice. But the question is, now your kids are on the record. And if you saw, the CBS person said 16 and changed it to 18. Pay attention. Just decided that this might be something that would, would kind of persuade some people. Uh, you know, Fran and I, my wife, Fran and I have been traveling around the state and talking to people who are getting vaccinated. And one of the things that we see is that there are some people who just were holding back and then their you know, relative talked them into it, their spouse talked them into it, right. or it became available, they didn't have to. So he's clearly saying that he's doing this to coerce people to get the vaccine or talking to people in order to coerce other people to get the vaccine. Why the desperation? Set up an appointment so that we have people who are, not, are never going to get it. We have people, 42% of Ohioans now have already got it. Then we've got the what I call the persuadables in the middle. And um, it's not just getting them to do it. Uh, some of them may eventually do it, but getting people to be vaccinated now, as opposed to a month or two months from now, will certainly slow this virus down. And ultimately this is gonna save lives. Were there, um, were there numbers you saw that suggested this was the right strategy? Because uh, I know one study shows incentives only increase vaccinations by around 8%, which could make this a very expensive gamble. Yeah, I don't think there's any way to calculate it. I mean, one study showed that, you know, uh, $100 per person yes. uh, was more significant than 25. And no, no one has tried this. And we just thought that it was worth to try this to do it. And, you know, we just know that this virus is still very much out there in Ohio. We've made real good progress. Our cases are coming down. 
But the variant, as you know, is out there and it's much more contagious than it's ever been. So in a talk I gave last night to the people of Ohio, I said, we've got really two groups of people. We have 42 percent of the people who are vaccinated and, and you know, they're free. They can go do what they want to do. You have the other group of people, though, who are not vaccinated and the danger to them is even more great in some respects than it has been in the past because this variant is more contagious. Well, Governor, you're, you're probably getting an A for creativity, but you're getting an F for, huh? Is this the right thing to do? It's our understanding that it's coming from the money, it's coming from the federal pandemic relief dollars, and you're getting bipartisan criticism on both sides. What do you say to people that say this is not the best use of this money at this particular time? Well, this is money that we got from the federal government to fight the virus. And, and I, there's nothing more potent at this time I'm just telling you. So now I am actually I communicated with an attorney to see if I can actually sue him. So um, good thing that I have some funds left over. I'm going to sue his ass for coercion and using federal tax dollars to coerce others. Listen to the verbiage he's using. He's like, since we're using it to fight against the pandemic, it's OK. It's really not. Fight the virus. Uh, the only game in town really at this point uh, is the vaccine. And Everybody that we can get vaccinated, uh, it fights the virus better. Um, you know, some people, I, I talked about this last night when I, when I explained this to the people of the state of Ohio. And I said, I know I'll be criticized. I know that mm -hmm. there'll be some people who say, well, that's, that's a waste. Um, what I think is a waste is when we have a vaccine that will save a life and someone still gets the COVID and dies because they have not been vaccinated Mm -hmm. That's what the waste is. Mm -hmm. That is a tragic, tragic waste. Mm -hmm. Governor, I, I want to ask you about something one of your fellow Ohio Republicans uh, said on this broadcast this morning. Congressman Jim Jordan uh, basically said that you cannot disagree with Mr. Trump and lead the Republican Party. Uh, we saw House Republicans oust Liz Cheney this week from the leadership. What's your reaction to that? And do you feel you still fit in the Republican Party? Oh, I very much fit in the Republican Party. No, uh, you, you know, don't. This, this is a party about opportunity. There's one thing that holds us together. Uh, it's our desire to create opportunity for every Ohioan, every American, so they can live up to their God-given potential. Do you think uh, it's a party of Donald Trump? Do you think, Governor, do you think it's a party of Donald Trump? I think it's a party of liberty. I think it's a party of freedom. I think it's the party of opportunity. What do that's, you think, then? Of, but 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 you saw Liz Cheney get ousted because she she criticized the former president. What was your reaction to that? You know, I spent 20, 20 years in the United States Congress. I'm not there now. I've got enough to worry about here in Ohio fighting the virus uh, and moving Ohio forward. And frankly, I'm focused on that every single day. So, um, look, you know, I have respect for Liz Cheney. Uh, I have respect for the former president. Um, but I'm focused on what my job is right now, and that's to fight the virus, get Ohio moving forward, protect the people of the state. All right, Governor. His best friend Wexner may have been giving him ideas. Look, he's spending federal tax dollars and he's trying to shape it into, well, here's the, here's the deal. We're using it to fight the virus. Well, you know what? No, you can't do that. That's called coercion. And he used that word too, to coerce people. Why are you coercing people? So I've, I'm, I, I've been texting. Hold on a second. I'll take that. Give me a second. Let me play some music. Oh, shoot. I missed that call. Damn it. That was the attorney. Um, uh, let me 
let me play a song while I step away to see if he's going to take the case because I think we need to sue him uh, and get this done. Oh, just gosh darn it. Yeah, obviously I don't have everything ready. It's, it's not a good thing. Oh, you know what we should do? Watch this. James O'Keefe. This is our next topic, but we shouldn't. We should go to Ted Cruz. You guys saw what um, that guy who's in the itchy human suit had to say about the origin of COVID. Take a listen. Here we go. Then it would require the establishment of a federal committee to research the origins of COVID-19. Madam Chair. Senator, uh, Senator Young. Could I just inquire uh, of my good friend from Florida whether... Uh, this federal committee to research the origins of COVID-19, if I have the amendment uh, uh, right, would be the tech directorate, or if this would establish some sort of distinct federal committee and use authorized funds from the Endless Frontier Act to fund said committee. So it creates a committee of HHS, NIH, CDC, DOD, DHS, USDA, DNI, and DO. Uh, Department of State to study the origins of COVID-19, and it's going to give grant awards to uh, to such ends. Report to the President, Congress on the findings. Okay, so thank you. I, I'm I'm opposing this amendment because it takes money away from the Tech Directorate. Uh, clerk will call the roll. Ma Madam Chair. Yes, Senator Senator Cruz. Um, I, I wanted to speak in favor of Senator Scott's amendment here. Um, look, all of us have dealt with the pandemic of COVID for a year and a half now. Uh, there are very serious questions about the origin of this pandemic. Uh, in particular, we know that the outbreak began in Wuhan, China. We heard initially the reports that it began in a wet market from uh, animals that were slaughtered there. Uh, subsequently, we discovered that there are not one, but two uh, virology labs controlled, owned, and run by the Chinese government in Wuhan, uh, including one virology lab that is literally 400 yards away from the wet market where the outbreak occurred. We also know that that virology lab was studying coronaviruses, not just coronaviruses, it was studying coronaviruses derived from bats. The bats that it was studying they are the only place they occur naturally. The closest place they occur naturally to Wuhan is in caves 900 miles away from the wet market. Um, we also know that the State Department had two separate internal wires prior to the outbreak of the pandemic, raising serious concerns about the security protocols of that Wuhan Institute of Virology lab. And in particular, they did not adequately protect against the accidental escape of a dangerous pathogen. Uh, and the State Department wires said in writing before the, anyone had ever heard of COVID-19 that there was a significant risk of the poor security protocols at the Wuhan Institute of Virology leading to a global pandemic of a coronavirus. Now, we don't have hard evidence that COVID-19 escaped from the lab. Initially, media reports treated any such suggestion as some wild-eyed conspiracy theory. And indeed, the Washington Post led the reporting on this and discussed scientists saying that based on the genetic markings of COVID-19, that it did not appear to be 
constructed in a laboratory. It did not appear to be a man-made virus. Um, I have no reason to dispute that conclusion, but whether or not it is a man-made virus doesn't answer the question whether it is a naturally occurring virus that occurred in bats that was being studied at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and that escaped accidentally, either through an animal being infected or a person being infected because of poor security protocols. Um, as we sit here today, I think that is the most likely inference. It is supported by circumstantial evidence. We should not be satisfied given that millions have died based on COVID-19 with having only circumstantial evidence. We also know that the Chinese government actively and aggressively suppressed information about COVID-19 when heroic Chinese whistleblowers, when doctors and, and journalists spoke out against COVID-19 in, in December two years ago, they were arrested, they were disappeared, they were silenced. And on any level, the Chinese communist government bears very significant culpability for allowing this to spread beyond a regional outbreak into a global pandemic. And it seems to me what Senator Scott has proposed is a serious government inquiry into what occurred. That should be an examination in particular of the records of those Wuhan labs that the Chinese government doesn't want to give. They want no scrutiny whatsoever, and they insist that, it's, that no one can ask those questions. Um, I would encourage a strong bipartisan vote. I think the American people very much want to know the origin of COVID-19, the degree to which the Chinese government bears responsibility for, in all likelihood, inadvertently allowing it to escape. And in terms of the funds, Madam Chairman, I understand that, that uh, the objection that it takes some of the funds at issue, but this bill is a $100 billion bill. Um, the amount of funds required to have a commission to produce a report on the origins of COVID-19 are not even a rounding error. I mean, it, it is a tiny drop in the bucket. And given the degree of, of public importance of this question, uh, I, I would encourage members of the committee to support this amendment. Madam Chair. Uh, Senator Wicker. Madam Chair, I, I, I would agree with Senator Cruz, and, and I would hope the chair would rethink her an initial reaction to this. Uh, I, I think the American people um, will appreciate the adoption of this uh, Scott Amendment. The, as Senator Cruz says, the questions are out there. This is at the forefront of what we're inquiring about um, daily on, on the news. And uh, it, it, it can't be that expensive to do this. We, we, may, we might refine it between now and the time it gets signed by the President of the United States. But let's make a step. So all they're doing is asking to check for the origins and they are refusing that. That's a, that's a super big deal. Okay. Super big deal. Now let me just take a quick break and I'll be right back. See you in a bit. This moment for all my life, oh Lord, can you feel it coming in the air tonight, oh Lord, 
I can feel that you guys are putting one and one together because anyone else wouldn't be able to. Um, what's interesting right now is that everything, the pipelines, COVID, China, Hunter Biden's laptop, they're all intertwined, every single one of them. And right now on C-SPAN, I'm trying to get this up as quick as I can. Um, Biden is supposed to be live uh, talking about... Um, I'm looking for it. He's supposed to be talking live about the colonial pipelines. I just saw it um, live. Biden. So he is supposedly live. There we go. Um, well, Wapo has it on. I'm not going to go with them. Let's go for C-SPAN. And it's not giving it to me. Let's see. Live. Well, we'll just go into NBC since I can't find it. So I wanted you guys to hear what he had to say, and then we'll get into like the details because all of this is, should be is all intertwined. Hold on. Let me get it to where he starts. All right. Let's see what he says. The Colonial Pipeline over this past week. As of yesterday evening, Colonial has begun restarting the flow of refined products in their pipeline. This morning, Colonial reported that fuel is beginning to flow to a majority of the markets that they service, and they should be reaching full operational capacity as we speak, as I speak to you right now. That is good news. But I want to be clear, we'll not feel the effects uh, at the pump immediately. This is not like flicking on a light switch. This pipeline is 5,500 miles long. It had never been fully shut down its entire history. And so, uh, so fully, and we have to, now they have to safely and fully return to normal operations. Uh, and it's gonna take some time. And there may be some hip, hic hiccups like I just had along the way here. <laughs> Still, we expect to see a region by region return to normalcy beginning this weekend and continuing into next week. In the meantime, I want to update you on what our administration is doing to accelerate this process, to mitigate shortages, and to protect you from price gouging, protect the American people from price gouging, all those along the line. First, we relaxed rules for pipeline operators to provide flexibility for emergency personnel to help manually get portions of the pipeline up and running earlier this week. Secondly, over the weekend, we reviewed and worked with the company to get a portion of the pipeline system from North Carolina to Maryland to operate under manual control and deliver its, deliver its existing inventory. In addition, we put in place emergency orders that lifts hours, the hours restrictions and allowed states to lift weight restrictions for tank truck drivers to be on the road. This allows those drivers to work more and carry more fuel to the affected regions. Third, the Environmental Protection Agency issued a targeted 20-day waiver of standards in several states to give fuel suppliers more flexibility to use available fuels where they're needed, 
which will boost the fuel supply. And those, uh, those last two actions have made tens of millions of gallons of additional fuel available each day to be able to be distributed. Put another way, the extraordinary measures the administration has taken, we estimate, sent enough gas to stations to fill the tanks of over 5 million vehicles in the last few days. Fourthly, as part of an effort to use every possible means to accelerate fuel deliveries, last night I granted a waiver of the Jones Act to uh, fuel suppliers. This allows non-U.S. flagged vessels to transport refined fuel products from the Gulf of Mexico to affected areas, and we'll grant additional waivers if necessary. These steps are temporary, but they will remain in place until full service is fully restored. This is a, it's a whole of government response to get more fuel more quickly. Did I say I told you so? To limit the pain being felt by American customers. Now, here's what drives the driver in the states that are affected. Here's what you can do, the drivers. Don't panic, number one. I know seeing lines at the pumps or gas stations with no gas can be extremely stressful. But this is a temporary situation. Do not get more gas than you need in the next few days. As I said, we expect the situation to begin to improve by the weekend and into early next week. And gasoline supply is coming back online. While they steal our oil. It will only slow the process. And I also want to say something to the gas stations. Do not. I repeat, do not try to take advantage of consumers during this time. I'm going to work with governors in the affected states to put a stop to price gouging wherever it arises. And I'm asking our federal agencies to stand ready to provide assistance to state-level efforts to monitor and address any price gouging at the pump. Nobody should be using this situation for financial gain. That's what the hackers are trying to do. That's what they're about, not us. That's not who we are. And as for the people who carried out this attack, the FBI's released details. So let me just pause this and clarify for those of you that need to get, you know, Joe can't tie a shoe, but he's like, look at me, right? Pay attention. You proud I'm going to, you're going to do what? You can't tie your shoe. But what you can do is do exactly what I told you he was going to do this morning. What did I tell you he was going to do? He was going to use trains and boats and, and, and trucks to steal our oil and give it to the Chinese. And now he came out and clearly said it. Hey, this is what we're going to do. Non-U.S. flagships, all waived. So anyone in the Gulf of Mexico, pick up our gas and deliver it. To where? <laughs> Doesn't matter. They're getting a hold of our gas. Free gas, everyone. Come on in. Unregulated, unchecked, because even the trucks have lifted weight restrictions, meaning they don't have to pass by the weighing machine on the road so they can have whatever it is they want. Could it be guns, tanks, people, gas? Nobody knows, but it doesn't matter because Joe said he's going to be totally fine. Can you see it now? ...on the attack so others can take steps to prevent from being victimized like Colonial has been. We do not believe, I emphasize, we do not believe the Russian government was involved in this attack. But we do have strong reason to believe that the criminals who did the attack are living in Russia. That's where it came from. We're from Russia. 
We have been in direct communications with Moscow about the imperative for responsible countries to take decisive action against these ransomware networks. We're also going to pursue a measure to disrupt their ability to operate. And our Justice Department has launched a new task force dedicated to prosecuting ransomware hackers to the full extent of the law. And finally, let me say that this event is providing an urgent reminder of why we need to harden our infrastructure and make it more resilient against all threats, natural and man-made. My administration is continuing uh, to safeguard our critical infrastructure, the majority of which is privately owned and managed, like Colonial Pipeline. Private entities are in charge of their own cybersecurity. And we need, and we have to, we know, we know what they need. They need greater private sector investment in cybersecurity. And that's why we launched a new public-private initiative in April that is focusing on strengthening cybersecurity in the electric sector for natural gas, for pipelines, as well as water systems and other lifeline sectors. And last night, I signed an executive order to improve the nation's cybersecurity. It calls for federal agencies to work more closely with the private sector to share information, strengthen cybersecurity practices, and deploy technologies that increase reliance against cyber attacks. It outlines innovative ways the government will drive to deliver security and software, using federal buying power to jumpstart the market. And so let me give you a guess. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to bring intelligence from other nations like CGI in Canada or maybe a military industrial complex component um, by General Jones. Or maybe we can bring in the Pakistani intelligence to help. Or maybe we should just hire the Chinese. They're real good at shit like this, right? Improve the products that all Americans use. To assist in this urgent work of protecting our, nations, our nation against cyber attacks, I'm calling on the United States Senate to move quickly to confirm Chris Inglis as our National Cyber Director and Jen Easterly Never. to be the Director of Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at the Department of Homeland Security. In America, we've seen critical in 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 infrastructure taken offline by floods, fires, storms, and criminal hackers. In Texas last month, we saw what happens when storms hit power systems that aren't fully modernized or ready to, for the threats of extreme weather with tragic results. Now we're seeing the effect of criminal hackers with gas lines throughout the Southwest, or the, excuse me, the Southeast. And we're in a competition with China and the rest of the world to win the 21st century economically. And we're not going to win it in competing with an infrastructure that is out of the 20th century. We need a modern infrastructure. My American Jobs Plan includes transformative investments in modernizing and securing our critical infrastructure. Later this afternoon, I'll be meeting with Republican senators to discuss ways we can move forward on modernizing the infrastructure we have today and building the infrastructure we need for tomorrow. I'm willing to negotiate as I've indicated yesterday to the House members and to the leadership. But it's clearer than ever that doing nothing is not an option. Again, we expect things to return to normal over the next several days. I will be monitoring Colonial's uh, progress and the federal government's support every step of the way. So stay strong, help us on the way. We're gonna get through this as we always do as Americans, and we're gonna do it together. And it's going to be quick. 
God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Mr. President, the hackers are believed to be living in Russia. At what point does the U.S. start to try to inflict pain on governments who allow this sort of thing to happen in their territory? We are. So they want Russia to be held accountable because they say that the people are in Russia. I can make it look like it, it, like Joe's iPad hacked the system if I want to. It's called non-attribution. You make it look like whatever you want. So now this clown of a, of, of a reporter asks a stupid question. We should hold the nations accountable for having people like that. Let me tell you something. Are we holding clowns like you responsible for holding our nation hostage with fake news, fake numbers? No. Are we going to penalize our U.S. government because you're a clown? Well, you know, actually, now that I think about it, um, but no, we don't do that. You don't hold someone hostage. It's like saying to a, ho to a hotel, you know, you're having people snort coke in their room and they're like, well, we tell them it's not allowed if they're doing it. Like, what do you want us to do? They're just temporarily here. And the same thing goes with IPs. A lot of you use VPNs and you can look like you're coming from Russia. So should we hold Russia accountable because they give a free mask for people to use on a VPN? That's what, that's what they're asking. Have sort of an international standard that governments knowing that criminal activities are happening from their territory, that we all uh, we all move on those uh, those criminal enterprises, and uh, that I expect that's one of the topics I'll be talking about with uh, with President Putin. Are you confident that Putin was not involved? Are you confident that Putin was not involved? I am confident that I read the report of the FBI accurately, and they say they were not. He was not. The government was not. What would you Mr. Like President, Wednesday's executive order mentions the Colonial Pipeline directly, but the press release says it only encourages private sector companies to follow the federal government lead, which encouragement is good, but in the face of profit, it's kind of sketchy. So what concrete steps is the administration taking to ensure that companies are prepared and held accountable for of their cyber issues? cybersecurity issues? You've asked three different questions in that one thing, I think, as I understand it. The bottom line is that I cannot dictate that the private companies do certain things relative to cybersecurity. Uh, a lot of you are very seasoned reporters. You've been covering this debate up on the Capitol Hill for before I became president and unrelated to President Trump, just a debate internally among senators as to whether or not the government should be insisting. And that gets into privacy issues and a whole range of things. So that's going to be an ongoing negotiation. But I think it's becoming clear to everyone that we have to do more than being done now. And the federal government can be significant value added in having that happen. Yes. Are you con will, will you consider doing any kind of retaliatory cyber attacks to shut down these criminals? Are you ruling that out? No. Is Prime Minister Netanyahu doing enough to, to stop this violence there from escalating? I uh, had a brief conversation with him yesterday, and uh, I have my, uh, my intelligence community, the Defense Department, as well as uh, the uh, State Department, have been in contact with all of their counterparts in not only in Israel, but in the region. And uh, one of the things that uh, 
I have seen thus far is that uh, um, there has not been a significant overreaction. The question is how how we get to a point where they get to a point where there is a significant reduction in the attacks, particularly the rocket attacks uh, that are indiscriminately fired into population centers. Um, but uh, I expect uh, I'll be uh, having some more discussions. Uh, and it wasn't, we haven't just spoken with the Israelis, with the Egyptians, the Saudi and others. So we're, it's, it's a work in progress right now. So thank you all so very much. On the ransoms, were you briefed on the fact that the company did pay the ransom? I have no comment on that. Yeah, Thanks. that was Hunter Biden getting the payout. Mm, that's what's up. And I'm going to tell you something about that. Okay, this is really weird. Okay, really weird. So for some reason, I have been watching the crypto industry just out of the blue lately. And what I noticed was that when they were paying the um, the ransom, uh, you know, the owner of um, Ethereum had uh, a bunch of stock in SHIB and, you know, dumped it the other day. Um, and the whole crypto market is being dumped and causing, you know, craziness. I have uh, a crypto account that has like a bunch of stuff in this morning. I mean, even though there is a little bit, um, I bank them and put them in the side and hedge them, even though, you know, <laughs> they're just like three digits max. And so I put them and put them and I'm telling you, uh, Bitcoin was dumped. Ethereum was dumped. Now all of that's going to come back up. That's fine. But the point of the matter is, is that that happened. Elon Musk was talking about it. And something's happening on the back end uh, with all of this. So for some reason, because of oil and gas um, or having a carbon footprint, uh, now you can't buy a Tesla with Bitcoin, which is what? But he was like, what do you say if we accept, you know, doggy, doge? Um, and he asked everyone on uh, uh, Twitter, uh, what do they think about doge? And that was crazy, right? Crazy. Uh, so a lot of this has been happening. And even though it's benefiting smaller um, tokens like SHIB, um, and everyone's kind of like, yeah, that's good, you know, uh, it seems that Bitcoin's run is done. And Ethereum platforms are moving up. And the ransom was paid with Bitcoin. And Bitcoin, they're all trying to get with Bitcoin. So central banks are targeting Bitcoin. Everyone's targeting Bitcoin because one Bitcoin is like, you know, 50 grand. So all these other ones that are kind of like what you would call penny stocks for those on the regular market, those are going berserk. And people are investing and it's a people's market. So Bitcoin is now being used by the elites uh, and the banks um, to reward people. There's actually a bank and I, um, a, a bank called uh, Quantic, Q-U-O-N-T-I-C. And it has a debit card that rewards you with cash back in Bitcoin. I kid you not. 
So they're all, so Bitcoin is looking to become more of a, a cryptocurrency to replace um, regular currency. Yet the stable coins, which are US dollar, Great British Pound, are all on the Ethernet side. So it seems like something really bizarre is happening considering that Hunter Biden had a lot of crypto according to his things. And I'm seeing some really, really interesting things. So what is it that we need 5 million for? Who needed the $5 million? What payoff was it for? And like I told you before, he even told you, right? Before Beijing Biden came out, I told you that um, he's going to be using trucks and trains, and now he's using non-U.S. flagged ships. They're stealing our oil. They're stealing our commodities. And, you know, that's that's pretty insane. And we have, you know, Pompeo up in North Dakota talking energy. We've got the Colonial Pipeline, the other main pipeline, uh, going berserk. Like, no one knows uh, who, what, when, where it's all going everywhere. And all of this, the pipelines, the, uh, craziness in the, um, crypto market and COVID are all hand in hand. And you're going to see that come forward. You're going to understand how that happens and how they're pushing on it. It's so insane. It's almost as if we're talking about the same thing from different angles. Um, but another thing that I wanted to point out is that Forbes lately has been having a love affair with Ted Cruz, and I'll showcase that. But um, before we get into other news, I wanted to get back to Rand Paul, okay? So Rand Paul was on Fox and Friends yesterday uh, talking about Fauci and how he didn't answer questions and he was avoiding questions. And he slammed the media for what they were doing. And I make him right because no one is talking about the elephant in the room. As we saw, you know, it was, you know, I've showcased Chris Berg on other platforms. And I really like the way he um, kind of dovetailed a question on Wuhan, Kansas. But what was interesting is that up until that question, Pompeo said, no matter how secure a facility is, there's always bound to be accidents. He said the same thing about Wuhatan. I mean, I would have loved that the question would have been followed up. Hey, um, the NABF hasn't had a risk assessment since 2012. Uh, a lot changes since then. And after Wuhan, I think it's imperative that we have one. Um, and that's just to re-examine everything. Uh and that wasn't asked and no one's talking about it. And then the city council and the mayor of the city that have every single right to bring that up to the federal government and say, we demand a risk assessment, an independent risk assessment, right? That isn't funded by the USDA, that isn't funded by the Department of Homeland Security, right? But is an independent risk assessment. If it was to be done, they can do that. They're just preferring not to. So this is right on target. Green banks, viruses, gas, oil. That's been going on for decades. 
And if we study, which we will go back in time to see how China implemented these green energy, how the UN has implemented the green energy, the green new deal, the building back better or building better in Africa through slavery that the Chinese have done. And we can examine the Congo for one, you'll see just where this is going. This is going to be Hunger Games on steroids. It's pretty bizarre. We possibly be jumping up and down and saying, oh, Governor Cuomo did a great no. job. He had the worst death rate in the world. No, you misconstrued that, Senator. And you've done that repetitively in the past. If we're not spreading the infection, isn't it just theater? No, you it's had not. the vaccine and you're wearing two masks. Isn't that theater? No, that's not. Here we go again with the theater. Dr. Fauci, do you still support funding of the NIH funding of the lab in Wuhan? Senator Paul, with all due respect, you are entire, entirely and completely incorrect. I don't favor gain-of-function research in China. You are saying naturally. things that are not correct. Oh, man, the sparks fly when Dr. Fauci is interrogated, let's say, by Kentucky uh, Senator Rand Paul, a member of the Senate uh, Education, Health and Labor Pensions Committee. And uh, the senator joins us right now. Good morning to you, Senator. Good morning. Good morning. Well, you, you're a doctor, so you've got special doctor questions of the doctor. He does not particularly like it. He was asked this morning over on another channel about the give and take between the two of you. He had this to say. Can I just ask about you and Rand Paul? Does your body tense up every time? And <laughs> by body, you know what I mean. Yeah. You know, Gail, I, I just don't want to get into that tit for tat with him. I, yeah. I just don't understand what the problem is yeah. with him. But, you know, well, I'm just going to do my job and he could do what he wants to do and we'll see what happens. Well, Senator, he says he's just going to do his job. But that seems to be what you've got a problem with, how he's doing his job. Well, if he was being interviewed by a journalist, they would have asked, did the NIH, did your specific division of the NIH give money to the Wuhan lab? That's incontrovertibly true. What he's arguing is he's parsing his words. He knows his group gave money, but he's saying, oh, it wasn't for juicing up these super viruses. We gave it for other research. It's sort of like the Planned Parenthood argument. Yes, we give taxpayer money to Planned Parenthood, but it's not for abortion. Dr. Fauci's arguing, yeah, we gave it you know, the NIH and my group specifically gave it to the Wuhan lab, but they weren't supposed to be juicing up. The viruses. money is fungible, as you say, on Capitol Hill. But it's even worse than that. The Dr. Xi, the bat scientist that's the most famous one for the Wuhan Institute, when she published her papers, which scientists across the board are saying are gain of function, they were juicing up viruses. She gave credit to Dr. Fauci. She said the funding came from, we have this in black yeah. and white from a peer reviewed journal. She said the funding came from Dr. Fauci's National Institute AID, NIAID. This is Dr. Fauci's baby for 40 years. She lists him in the credits. He can't escape this. He did the funding. And my other question is, China's a rich country. They're kicking our butt in so many places. Why would we be giving them money for their research? Can't yeah. they spend their own money on their own research? Senator Paul, Dr. Fauci calls your exchange a tit for tat, and he said he doesn't know what your problem is. That's because he's been placed on a pedestal and no one thinks it's appropriate to question him. No one, it seems, except for you and a few others. Have you received the answers that you want? We saw in that clip, you're asking him about using New York as a model, why you should be masked when you 
when you have already received the vaccine. And importantly, what you're talking about this morning, the origins of the coronavirus. He said to you directly, that's not true regarding his support of gain of function. When we know there's an editorial going back to 2011 that he has supported gain of function research. Have you received the answers you're looking for, Senator? No, but we've sent inquiries. There's been freedom of information as well as inquiries from House oversight when it was under Republicans and now from our office, Ron Johnson, others. We're asking specifically for some NIH papers and the conclusions, because in those conclusions, we believe it will be unequivocal from a group of scientists that they will conclude that, yes, the Wuhan Institute was making these super viruses. Now, they're still going to argue they didn't fund it. But this is a really important argument. It's not a partisan argument. So when Dr. Fauci goes on these other channels and they laugh it up and yuck it up, but they never ask him, did you fund the Institute? See, he's trying to evade that he funded it at all. I asked him the general question. I didn't ask him whether he funded gain of function. I said, did the NIH fund the Wuhan lab? And he, he danced around it and answered a different question. But there is no question at all that the NIH funded this lab. Whether it was gain of function, there's many scientists, Dr. E. Bright, Dr. Baltimore, many scientists out there. There were 200 scientists in the Cambridge Working Group that are worried about creating these super viruses in the lab and the possibility that they could get out. So this isn't just me. It's not partisan politics. Shouldn't be partisan at all. We should, we should want to protect the public in case another virus like this could escape. This is so crazy, though, because... If this happened because of the NIH funding, and that came from Dr. Fauci, and then this spreads into a global pandemic, and now he's in charge of the response in the United States, the irony of that, what do you make of that? Well, it's even, it's even worse than you make out. The person they appointed to investigate the lab from the WHO perspective is the guy who gave the money. So NIH gave the money to a group called EcoHealth. The head of EcoHealth, a guy named Asank, they got him to investigate whether Wuhan was doing anything inappropriate in their lab. But if they were, wouldn't he then be culpable? So doesn't he have a self-interest in smoothing things over? I'm not saying he did cover things up, but you wouldn't appoint someone who's in the line of uh, supply chain of giving the money to them because ultimately here's the rub. I don't know whether it came from the lab. Nobody knows whether it came from the lab, but who would be culpable? Dr. Sure. Fauci could be culpable for the entire pandemic. So could Dr. Sezank. Zank and so could Dr. Xi. I'm not saying that happened. I don't know. But you wouldn't put the people who gave the money to the Wuhan lab in charge of the investigation. That looks like a cover up. No kidding. And it's curious that it seems like the only people asking about the origin of the coronavirus, which has killed tens of thousands of Americans, all seem to be Republicans, which is odd. You would think and it shouldn't be that way. No, absolutely there should not. be bipartisan concern. There's 11 labs in the United States that are cooking up and creating super viruses. That's, that's worrisome. The, just the term super virus is pretty strange. Senator, doctor, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Isn't it interesting how we talk about Kansas and all this is now coming after a year of not knowing. I wish I had like a dripping sound. Drip, 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 drip. Are you seeing how this is all coming together? Are you seeing how it all comes together? Are you listening to what they're saying? Now, while many say that hope has died because we're not getting those posts with lines being drawn everywhere, 
It's everywhere, not just there. So now let's move along before we get to more drip, 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 drip. Uh, let's get to Ted Cruz's love affair with Forbes because it seems like they love Ted Cruz a lot lately. And here he is telling people, why don't you ask Kamala Harris about the border crisis? I mean, after all, she is a SAR. So thank you for playing your role correctly and asking and saying the right things. Halting construction of the wall on week one in office, reinstating the failed policy of catch and release, and most indefensibly, ending, ripping up the international agreement remain in Mexico that had produced last year the lowest rate of illegal immigration in 45 years. Remain in Mexico was an incredible success. So what did Joe Biden do? Ripped it up. And we have right now today the worst illegal immigration in 20 years. 178,000 people came in last month, the month of April. We're on a path to 2 million people, and it's getting worse. This month is worse than last fixing it. But as it's getting worse and worse, the corporate media has stopped covering it. You turn on the six o'clock news and suddenly the Biden border crisis has disappeared. Now, I recognize there are other crises. We've got a gas crisis playing out. We've got a war in the Middle East. We may have an inflation crisis coming. I agree. Biden policies are failing across the board, economically, domestically and abroad. But that doesn't mitigate the disaster that's playing out on our southern border. In over 100 days in office, Joe Biden has not been to our southern border. Biden named Kamala Harris as in charge of the border. She has not been to the southern border once as vice president. I would say to the folks in the media, anytime you're standing in front of the president or vice president, the very first question should be, why haven't you gone to the southern border to see the crisis, to see the little boys and little girls being physically abused, sexually abused because of your policy failures? And by the way, the reason they don't go, there's an answer to this is they know if they go, they'll bring TV cameras. They know if they go, the press will be forced to cover it. Kamala Harris has been to the Canadian border as vice president, but not the southern border. The last I checked, we don't have a crisis of thousands of Canucks coming south across the border. This is a dereliction of duty. It is deliberate, and they don't intend to fix it. They don't intend to fix it because they have promised the radicals they will have open borders and they will not enforce our laws. And that is endangering the people of my home state of Texas. It's endangering people all across the country. It is unacceptable. It is inhumane. And it's wrong. Well, he always says some things that are really, really good. Now, let's stick to Forbes for a second and head over to John Kerry, Mr. Antarctica himself, getting grilled. Take a listen to this short clip where they're asking Mr. Ecology a few questions. Uh, Mr. Secretary, you just quite literally contradicted yourself. You said you are for all of the above, but you're not. We spoke earlier, Representative Issa asked the question about the Keystone Pipeline. You're fundamentally in disagreement with delivering that fuel into the United States of America. It, it, it would beg the question, did the hack on the Colonial Pipeline save you the trouble of having to shut that one down? Well, uh, Congressman, uh, I appreciate your, your question. 
And may I, as a matter of personal privilege, just say how much I admire your personal service to our country. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. I, I uh, would say to you this, I don't think it's a contradiction. Yes, we're gonna use gas for some period of time. And I'm not one of those that comes in and says, you gotta shut it down today, tomorrow. We can't do that. What we can do is begin to take steps that reduce reliance. Even as we keep alive the ability to have sufficient gas for purposes we need. It's a fair point, Mr. Secretary, but to the point that you made to my friend, Mr. Issa, to quote it, that is true. The pipelines are more carbon delivery efficient than rails and trucks, Correct. saying they, they deliver the fuel by using less carbon in order to deliver that fuel. Let but me Congress finish the quote. Here, let me the finish challenge. the quote and I'll let you respond. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that that you want to be adding another line, another one of these more efficient routes. There are alternatives, but yes, pipeline is better than trains and trucks. So let me let me tell you why we we can do better in meeting our goal of reducing our emissions. All the gas we burn, first of all, gas is 87 point some percent methane. Gas leaks. If you, in the, in the Permian Basin, for instance, we have a leakage, even if you have it around 2.7%, scientists say that can be more damaging than CO2. Our leakage is at about 5% or 10% in some places in, in America. Now, if that's the leakage in America, think what it is in other places. Because of the melting of permafrost and the melting of the tundra, the thawing of the tundra, we're now seeing methane being released around the world that isn't capped, that isn't used. President Biden has put an effort into his legislation to start capping open wells and open mines that are giving off methane in the United States. Mr. Secretary, could I summarize, so your, could I summarize your position by saying you want no crude or petrol used? <clears throat> Would that be an accurate summary? The what? You want no crude, no petrol used in the future. Would that no. be an accurate summary? Well, it depends what you mean by the future. We're going to be doing that. We're going to be using crude. We're going to be using crude. We're going to, well, crude, first of all, is used for lots of other things than fuel and power. So we're going to use crude well into the future. Not delivered by pipeline, though. Well, no, it could well be delivered by pipeline already. We're doing that. But our source of power, President Biden has already made this decision, and the utilities are already accepting it. I want to ask one more question because I, I want to yield some time to one of my friends here who, who may not be able to, to ask you some questions. By 2035, though, President Biden is determined we will be carbon free in our power production. You're talking about not allowing these new avenues to deliver them, even though they're more efficient, like the Keystone Pipeline. Would there also be an effort to not promote other forms of delivery, that is to say, not permit a new rail car that's being used to deliver that because Colonial is down right now, not permitting a new uh, truck to go over the road, uh, which is what's being used to deliver those those fuels right now. Would that also be a part of the no, program? No, no, I don't. I, I really think we're talking much more reasonably, Congressman, in a way that we have to try to accelerate the transition to clean fuel. That's what we have to try to accelerate. It's not going to happen overnight. So we're going to need, now I'd rather see gas used rather than coal anywhere in the world. 
And I think there are ways to try to assist in doing that. But even gas. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. I'm going to yield my time to Mr. Fluger for a moment. Okay. No, thank you for yielding. Mr. Secretary, for the first time in 70 years, our country is energy independent. It's a lever of power. It's national security. Energy security is national security. And so you've mentioned that we need to take steps. We have taken steps, as you've clearly highlighted today, from being 15% down to 11%. That's huge. Do you believe that wind and solar can provide baseload capacity for this country? Not alone. No, that's absolutely right. We Not saw it yet. in Texas, Not the winter yet. storms, and we've Not seen it in California. I should, I should amend that by saying, Congressman, not yet alone. If we break through on storage. Gentlemen's time has expired. The answer is yes. I now recognize Representative Susan Wilder. So here we go. It's going to start. It's starting, and that's the way it is. And I don't understand why he wore a mask when Pelosi said, we don't wear masks when we speak as long as we keep our social distance. I mean, it's only when it suits them, right? So I'm going to introduce you to what everyone's talking about, but I'm not yet. Kind of mentioned it yesterday. What's going on in the Mediterranean? Now, if you heard Beijing Biden, he said that he was talking to Israel and other nations, and I've already mentioned those nations. Um, but here is what the former Israeli ambassador to the United Nations is saying. It's really important to just listen. Because when you listen, people tell you who they are. Allahu Akbar. Look at this. It's getting really bad over there. Israel remains under siege. The terrorist organization Hamas continues to fire rockets into Israel. Israel has retaliated. They've been under siege for most of its history, and so many won't even recognize its right to exist. We are privileged once again to have Danny Danan with us. He is the former Israeli ambassador to the United Nations. He joins us from Tel Aviv. And, sir, I understand that you... Uh, you're in a shelter right now. You're you you potentially under fire at this moment. Um, welcome and how's it going over there? But I had to, to enter the shelter with my family as we speak. There are rockets flying into the center of Tel Aviv, uh, and uh, millions of Israelis in the middle of the night uh, are actually are now in shelters because we are under fire, under attack. Uh, but as you mentioned, we will retaliate. We are retaliating. We will not uh, allow Hamas to terrorize our lives. What do you think of the American response so far? I understand uh, Joe Biden has been noncommittal and something about uh, sending an envoy. What do you think of the American response so far? I was very disappointed uh, to hear the response coming from the new administration calling both sides to show restraint and to de-escalate the situation. You cannot speak about both sides. You have a terrorist organization, a radical Islamic movement, and you have a sovereign democracy, the strongest ally of the U.S. So I don't accept that the language. I think everybody in the U.S. should know that Hamas is a dangerous organization. Actually, this organization was the only one which celebrated the attack in 9-11. They issued a statement supporting Al-Qaeda. So you, you cannot call both sides. You cannot put it in the same equation. We expect our friends and allies to stand with us when we are defending our people. 
So listen to the words that he used. He said, Hamas said that they stand with Al-Qaeda during 9-11. That's to rally up all those that are very upset with 9-11. But see, that doesn't work for people who know exactly what happened on 9-11 because we all know Al-Qaeda. Remember, he's a UN ambassador. So remember, we all know um, Al-Qaeda has not much um, to do with it. But, you know, we all know also that Iran uh, sponsors Hamas. It's the one in the same. It's an extended arm. <laughs> and with all the movements of Qatar and Turkey uh, in uh, Persia and the African, the, the, the Horn of Africa, I mean, this was expected. Well, personally, my heart is with you. Uh, I wish the government were a bit more on board maybe a lot more on board. We know that President Trump was uh, so firmly committed. You never had a better friend and an American president than Donald Trump. This is uh, our Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, today. The United States remains committed to a two-state solution. This violence takes us further away uh, from that goal. We fully support Israel's legitimate right to defend itself. We've condemned, and I condemn again, the rocket attacks in the strongest possible terms. Strongest possible terms, um, but a lot of people are not buying that. As you know, uh, the far left has a great big spot in this administration. Uh, I know that, and uh, I heard the remarks coming from uh, Congresswoman uh, Omar and Cortez, uh, and I think... Uh, they should know better. They should know better what's happening uh, on the ground. Uh, they should come and see the evil of Hamas. Uh, only a few hours ago, a uh, five-year-old uh, was killed. He actually was in shelter in his apartment, but uh, unfortunately the rocket uh, penetrated the shelter uh, and he died a few hours ago. We are under fire. We will prevail. We will overcome. And I can tell you one thing. The Hamas will pay a heavy price. We will hunt them down in their homes, in their offices, in the tunnels where they are hiding until they will beg us for a ceasefire. Here in uh, America, as you know, there are, you have a lot of support, but you have uh, vocal uh, supporters of uh, the terrorist organization, Hamas. And let's take a look at some of the videos, some clashes actually here in New York. Um, these are, well, nothing, yeah, it got, uh, it got kind of interesting for a time. Um, how confident are you going forward that America will be there for you? Uh, Joe Biden, I heard him say uh, that world leaders say, oh, welcome back. Uh, you're back now. The Amer America is back now. But for how long? How do you feel right now about uh, your ally uh, in us? So let's make it clear. We are a strong nation. We have a strong army. We never asked the U.S. to come and support us or to send troops on the ground. But I think it is a moral decision of the new administration where they stand today, whether they stand with the Israel or they're actually playing the game like the U.N. or the EU, where they try to play politically correct. This is unacceptable. And I know that most of the American people support Israel and know that we are fighting evil. The same evil that is threatening the U.S. is fighting with Israel today. Good luck, sir. I hope it's probably going to be a long night. Um, and my heart breaks for what you're going through right now. Uh, please come back 
And you've been through this before, though, haven't you? Yeah, unfortunately, we have. But, you know, when you have kids and you have to drag them in the middle of the night to the shelter, it's not pleasant for any father in the world. I can only imagine. And I'm so sorry. Ambassador Danan, we appreciate it. Please be safe. Our thoughts and prayers are with you. And we'll be right back. Well, then. So I'm going to leave it at that, not have a discussion on that, because you're going to see it uh, pop later. So uh, you're going to understand what's going on, but, you know, pipelines and all. So in closing today, I thought we can end with James O'Keefe responding to uh, a New York Times um, hit piece. I'm glad someone else puts that stuff on out when they get interviewed because people like to talk a lot of smack. Well, the New York Times is at it again. We just received an email from one of the reporters, Adam Goldman, who wrote us an email. I guess they're doing a hit piece on us, about to be published. He's asking me for comment. So I'm actually going to read the email he sent me, and, uh, and this will be my comment. So here we go. Quote, hi, James. We're preparing to publish a story about Project Veritas operations. There are several elements of the story that include a planned sting operation against H.R. McMaster using a journalist and involving Richard Seddon. We'd like to know if you were involved in that operation and who asked Project Veritas operatives to carry out the plan against the former national security advisor. Project Veritas used a shell company to rent a house on Prospect Street in Georgetown where several undercover female PV operatives lived and worked, mounting sting operations against the FBI. State Department, and other federal employees. We'd like to discuss why Project Veritas wanted to secretly film and record FBI employees. And why didn't Project Veritas include its secret footage of FBI employees while promoting its series called Deep State Unmasked? Another element of the story involves the training exercise that Mr. Seddon oversaw at the Prince Ranch and the interviews conducted inside the Prince Hangar at the Cody Airport. We're publishing a story and would like your response by tomorrow morning at the latest. Please respond via email. Thanks, Adam and Mark. Adam, if you're asking these questions, suffice to say you have your facts wrong. It appears you're going to print based upon supposition, rumor, and speculation rather than verifiable facts. Of course, this is nothing new for you guys at the New York Times. This is what you did last time you wrote a news article, the one that was subject of a defamation lawsuit that we filed against your organization and subsequently won on motion to dismiss in the state Supreme Court of New York. Oh, that's the thing that you're not actually talking about in your newspaper. That's the defamation lawsuit where the justice of the New York State Supreme Court said it was actually deception and disinformation for the New York Times to interject their opinion in a news article and claim that it's news reporting. And again, Facebook calling our videos false and not true based upon New York Times statements that now you're defending as opinion. We sued your organization, the New York Times, for defamation. And in an answer, to our lawsuit just a couple weeks ago, your organization admitted that you got the facts wrong in your original article. In that original article, Adam, one of your reporters, the New York Times, wrote, quote, district court judge July temporarily suspended Minnesota's ban on ballot harvesting. But in the answer filed in court to the judge, New York Times lawyers admit that you got your facts wrong, changed it to read, quote, the district court ruled a delaying enforcement of the law against ballot collection. So you're effectively admitting in court that what we reported 
Liban Mohammed, more than three ballots, was against the law. Yet, your article remains uncorrected. You admit in court that you got the facts wrong, but you haven't corrected the article. Such bad faith. If I did that, you'd rightfully crucify me. But yet the New York Times can get away with that? That's gutter standards. That's gutter journalism. We have never made a mistake like that. And you make that mistake and you refuse to correct your article. Why would I engage with you or any organization that behaves that way? Also interesting about this email is that he asked me to respond, quote, via email when I've repeatedly tried to actually engage in a conversation with Adam on the telephone. In fact, here's a clip of me actually speaking with him and he expresses frustration that he's actually talking to me. Hey, Adam, this is James O'Keefe. Um, uh, so my- I, I figured, James, I, I figured you were on. So, 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 so are we, are we, we're on the record. Why are you so concerned about whether you're being recorded or not since this is on the record, I Won't say a word. So obviously people have no interest in actually reporting facts or the truth. And they certainly have no interest in the truth because they haven't yet reported on the fact that we've won a huge victory in our defamation lawsuit against the New York Times. They haven't even mentioned that. In fact, the last time that you did a front page hit piece, Adam Goldman, you actually had to print a correction. You were in our retracto video. You got the age of one of our reporters wrong and we framed your correction and hang it above our toilet whenever anyone goes to the bathroom. Hi, you reached Adam Goldman at the New York Times. Hi, you reached Adam Goldman at the New York Times. Hi, you reached Adam Goldman at the New York Times. Hi, Adam. This is James O'Keefe. Uh, we're just sort of doing a comment live on your, your email to me and um, uh, very excited to depose your colleagues at the New York Times. Looking forward to that, opening up reporters' notebooks and, um, you know, winning, really, and suing a lot of other people at the New York Times. We have this whole thing called Project Veritas Legal. It's very exciting. It's a people's defamation defense fund. And um, you are live right now. My whole staff is watching this uh, phone voicemail. And, um, you know, we got a big video we're putting out here shortly. So stay tuned. Adam, be brave. Grow a pair. Call me back. Don't make us give you the alpaca treatment. He's coming at you. Well, then, you know, uh, everybody could see James O'Keefe coming. They know. They know. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little conversation that was had on January 5th, 2021. And it wasn't had with me, but it was about me. And it was a room full of people. And one person says, well, my money's, my money's on, on, you know, what Tori said. Um, and it was always there. And you know what they said? Nah. It's like the worst bet. The more you ignore it, the more it'll go away. And this is coming from people that... 
oh, a good chunk of the U.S. population trust speaking with people that I used to work with. She's never been in the limelight. She doesn't know what it's like. And people like her don't exist. This is going to be hard. So we got this. Leave it alone. Don't martyr her because then people will listen. And that's what's beautiful. This is what I expected and I wanted rather than them come at me. Why? Well, you guys have been able to see exactly what you are capable of doing. It started all in January. When you sent that letter to the AG, we talked about energy. We talked about Wuhan, Kansas, right? We talked about all these things. We talked about, well, we talked about Antarctica over a year ago, and I told you it was happening in May 2021. Uh, we talked about Africa, and we're seeing all of that kind of just swirl together. You were also told about the pipelines in the Mediterranean and how important that is. I didn't need them to martyr me. I didn't need them to thump me. I didn't need them to go after me. I needed them to do just that. Because have you guys ever heard of a, of a horse named Mind That Bird? You should watch that story. I think there's a movie about it. It was actually the first derby that I took my daughter to. My eldest loves horses. And one thing people need to know that a horse usually doesn't ride alone, right? A horse runs with its, uh, they don't call them packs, right? A horse, when it comes forward, it's, uh, it comes out. So mind that bird is a story of you. And it's just so incredible that their actions, their responses were exactly what I expected and on point. Their predictive analytics obviously didn't work. They believed that the people were that mesmerized and they believed that even if there was a flicker of truth that no one would flock because they had the opposition, the controlled opposition, the ones that have mesmerized you with stories of Gandalf and SEAL teams. <laughs> and so this is where America rises and shows her real teeth, her real height and stature, her real voice. And it's so incredible, isn't it? I mean, did they, why are they so adamant now to find out the origin of the Wuhan virus and not a year ago? has nothing to do with Wuhatan, right? Why did pipelines just happen to come up when we started to talk about the Biden pipelines? Why is it that energy was such a big deal when we made sure we had the AGs on point? Controlled opposition. They always come in like a, what are those, those festivals and come and listen to me, pay a ticket and come see me. Um, I don't do that. I was actually approached by all of the events and I was like, uh, no, that's dumb. 
why would anyone want to go somewhere to talk when you can still do what you do and continue on the mission? You think that they, they don't invite? Of course they do. Of course they do. We'll fly you out, you know, we'll get you a hotel. It's like, if I want to come, I can fly out myself and get myself my own room. See what I'm trying to say? Nothing can stop what's coming. And I know that the ones, even though the media and those politicians won't be able to walk on the street, the ones that kept you under a spell, that fed you garbage, rather than activating you to do something, rather than telling you to do something, those are the ones that will definitely not be able to walk out on the street. Because it's unacceptable what they have done to the people. Unacceptable how they tell people, sit back and wait, we, we got this. Unacceptable. This isn't how America works. We work as a unit. We work stronger as one. This is why we say where we go one, we go all. Because if one of us moves forward, all of us should move forward. And that's the way it should be. And it's too bad that the others didn't get the memo. This is the precipice this year, 2021. And it started off with an event that I didn't want to go to, if you remember. But because the president said so, I went. I did say, I don't want people to go. But he said so. So let's do Patriots stay the way they want to. And that's all going to come out. Because if you guys had paid attention to the PSYOP, the steal, you see that the operation that they executed was one that I helped create for another nation. And while many talk smack and say things, I know that what I sacrifice, no one can give back to me. You know, if my mother passes away, I won't be able to go see her. It's pretty interesting how few people understand just how important this is right now. So get on those emails, get on those phones, and let's take our nation back. I'll see you guys tomorrow. God bless. Everything and everything make me your Aphrodite.